Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do today, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 43 and go to the end of the chapter. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel accounts that share the good news of who you are and what you did for us. Lord, I pray that as we step into this account of of how you were betrayed, I pray even the the really hard, dark parts of this account that that we would have hope that you are, are turning betrayal into blessing that you're faithful, you're good, and you're willing to do the hard stuff for our good. Lord, I pray that this passage would uh, help us to to see you with fresh eyes so that we can run to you when we're walking through trials, when we're walking through betrayal ourselves. But also pray, Father, that that we would see the good news of, of what is being accomplished here, of how you're redeeming a people back to yourself. You're redeeming the ones that betray you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see you in all your glory here, that we would trust you in in fresh ways and in new ways. And Lord, I pray if there's someone in this room today that that doesn't trust you, that doesn't believe in you for their salvation, that today would be the day as as they see you here, that they would see you with those spiritual eyes that turn into faithful eyes where they trust you and are converted today. Father, to that end, I pray that you would just send your spirit, and I pray that we would not do anything out of step with your will or your word in these next moments together. Be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, Mark 14, verses 43 to 72 are all about betrayal. And and betrayal, at the end of the day, is about broken trust. Betrayal happens when when people understand the boundaries of a relationship and then someone breaks those boundaries. Betrayal is is delivering over when you're supposed to protect somebody within those boundaries. Betrayal is is really, if you think about it, is is like uh, telling a lie or or perjury or or violating the oath of a relationship. Uh, Robert Jones is a biblical counselor and he tells the story of, of a couple that he was counseling of a husband and wife who were walking through painful betrayal. In this account, the husband had committed the sin of adultery against his wife and against God. And to make matters worse, the man was a pastor. And here's what the wife said. After a year of counseling, she said, if you had told me one year later when my husband's affair was uncovered that we would be together again, I would have laughed at you. If you told me our marriage could be strong, I would have called you cruel. But that's exactly what God has brought out. All is not ideal. He is far from a perfect husband, and doubts and memory still invade me. But, but what we've learned about ourselves and about our Lord is priceless. Praise God who really does redeem dirty things and make them shine. Listen, God's in the business of turning betrayal into blessing. He, he's in the, the business of taking these bad things and, and turning them to our good. And, and let's be really, really clear. Betrayal stings. And if you've been betrayed, you know that sting. And the first thing I want you to know is that Jesus knows that sting as well. 
Today, if, if you have your Bibles, go to Mark 14 if you haven't already gone there. And we're going to start in 43 and go all the way to 72. And this story is really about actually three different types of betrayals. First, his disciples betray Jesus. Then his people betray him. And then even a close friend betrays him. And so what we're meant to see in all this betrayal is that Jesus knows the experience of the the sting of betrayal. But the reason why this passage is so important is because there's just layers of good news that, that come out of this passage, beginning with the fact that you can turn to him when you have been betrayed. When you're walking through that experience, when you're experiencing that same sting of betrayal, you can turn to Jesus because he cares, he knows, and, and he can turn that betrayal into blessing. But the good news is actually more than that because this passage is going to highlight the purpose behind what Jesus is walking through. And let's be clear, Jesus chose to walk through this. He chose to walk through this knowing all that was going to happen, and he does this for a redemptive purpose. He's accomplishing his redemptive will here. And so even in this broader cosmic sense, he's turning betrayal into blessing. He, he is, uh, he, he's taking people who have betrayed him and then helping them experience him in a salvific way. But Jesus also offers the good news as a result of this experience of betrayal in that even though a disciple and a nation and his friend have betrayed him, he, he stands fast and the gospel truth that he is the son of man, he's going to be seated at the right hand of God, and that he's going to return. So Jesus' human experience of betrayal is walked through so that humans can then experience him. The first thing I want you to see, starting in verse 43, is I want you to know that Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. Let's start in 43 and go all the way down to 52. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What's going on here is apparently the the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to have some sort of auxiliary temple police force. The Sanhedrin were the legislative body uh, of the Jews of that day, and it it was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. And and those groups were typically at odds, but but they worked together in this legislative body called the Sanhedrin. The, The Sadducees were we, could under, we can understand them as, as part of the ruling class of the nation. And they, they very cleverly kind of navigated their relationship with the Roman rulers. But they, they maintained the, the temple and they maintained power and, and wealth in the country. Now, we would understand them theologically as theological liberals. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't hold to certain portions of the Old Testament that didn't have to do with the law. But they were kind of the ones in charge. 
But the Pharisees were a little bit different. The Pharisees also held power in the New Testament. And, and if you can uh, remember scenes in the uh, Gospels, you know that the Pharisees are, are typically kind of at odds with Jesus and the disciples. They're typically their opponents. But, but the Pharisees, you can think of it as they held the heart of the people. They were not linked primarily with the temple. They were linked primarily with the synagogue. So they were with the people throughout the nation, week in and week out, teaching God's word and ministering to them. But they were, if the Sadducees were theological liberals, the, the Pharisees were theological conservatives, even holding to a real strict legalistic interpretation of the Bible. And that at its core was where the opposition with Jesus came because Jesus taught that he was the fulfillment of the law, not disregarding the law, but, but cutting to the heart of the law. So uh, the Pharisees were maybe interested primarily in people not murdering. Jesus, of course, would cared about that as well. But Jesus was also concerned with people uh, having uh, anger in their hearts. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees, even though they didn't see eye to eye on so many different things, kind of the old saying of the enemy of my enemy is my friend came into play here on the Sanhedrin as it related to Jesus. So they decided at that level that they were going to convict Jesus, but they, they needed a betrayer. They needed someone uh, to kind of lead the temple police to arrest Jesus. Judas became the betrayer that they needed. There's a lot of speculation as to why. Why did Judas do this? We, we know some things about Judas from John 12 is that he managed the money of the disciples. So, so he probably functioned in some way like the treasurer of their ministry. We also know that he sold out Jesus from, from Matthew 26 for 30 pieces of silver. So, so probably money was somehow tied into this, maybe a love of money for Judas. But there's also a debate on when you see Judas's name in the New Testament, it's typically Judas Iscariot. No one knows what Iscariot means. But there's, there's one interpretation of that word is that it's similar to the Hebrew word for assassin, where we get the, the word Sicario. And, and so if that's what that word means, then likely it meant that Judas was somehow connected to the zealots who were, who were assassins, and their goal was to overthrow the Roman rule. And so that line of thinking is, is that Judas possibly got disillusioned with Jesus when it became clear that Jesus wasn't primarily about politics, that Jesus wasn't primarily about overthrowing the Roman rule, but Jesus was about something else. And so Judas likely became disillusioned with Jesus. The way Judas betrays Jesus is what's significant here. He betrays him with a kiss. Now, there's a lot in that, but it's kind of a strange act if you think about it, right? But the significance of it is the intimacy of it. He, he knew Jesus at a, at a real personal level. They, they knew each other. They had walked with each other. And that gets to the sting of the betrayal. Like when you've been betrayed, if it's by somebody that you don't really have a deep relationship with and there's no real cost to the betrayal, then the sting is less. But if it's somebody that you have an intimate relationship with and there's great cost to the betrayal, then the sting is weightier, right? And that's what's going on here. Judas is someone that knew him very well. And also the, the cost of the betrayal is everything. It leads to his crucifixion. So Jesus knew the sting of betrayal. And that leads to kind of the first key takeaway of this. The first key takeaway is that Jesus knows the sting of betrayal and as a result, we can all go to him when we experience that same sting of betrayal. 
In other words, Jesus is not this God that is so transcendent that we can never relate to Him in our day in and day out struggles. Listen, you can turn to Him with all your struggles. Jesus says that He is a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews 4. He's with God continuing to minister to you on your day in and your day out struggles. So when you're betrayed, remember the garden and hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and you will find rest. You see, Jesus was wronged by Judas's betrayal and it, and it gives us a pathway to him when we experience betrayal. But Jesus was also wronged by the, by the temple police. In, in, in John 18, it identifies Peter as the one who takes out that sword and cuts off the guard's ear. And in fact, in John, it, it, it names who that man was, which I think is likely means that that man was known by the readers, meaning that he became a Christian later and known in the church. But due to the wrong, Peter instinctively fights. He fights to protect Jesus. He responds with a righteous anger. However, that's where this scene kind of takes a surprising turn, doesn't it? Like, I totally understand Peter's response, don't you? Like, listen, let's be honest. If we were there, wouldn't you rather be that guy drawing the sword than the guy out of fear running out of his clothes? Like, I think there's, there's something really pious and good about who Peter is in that moment. And, and let's be clear, I think sometimes there's a time to draw the sword. Like when Jesus returns in Revelation 19, he's returning with a sword. He's going to judge and he's going to bring about his kingdom with that sword. So sometimes the sword is the right tool, but it was the wrong tool in the garden. And it was the wrong tool because even though Jesus was in that, uh, that pain of betrayal, it all fit within this broader redemptive mission that he was trying to carry out. If you remember the angel when he came to Joseph in Matthew 1, he said that Jesus was, was going to save his people from his sin. So the garden, the betrayal, the trial, the, the abuse, the crucifixion, they were all part of God's broader redemptive plan. So after noting the hypocrisy and the cynicism of these of these temple police and all that they were doing. Notice, look again at Mark 14, 49. Look at what Jesus says there. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. You see, Jesus is more than an example of someone who, who was betrayed and thus He can identify with our betrayal. Jesus knew He was going to be betrayed. He chose that betrayal because of His commitment to the Bible. He was committed to this broader redemptive plan. Jesus said in Luke 24 that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And here he's saying, listen, let the scriptures be fulfilled. We've got this redemptive mission that I'm trying to accomplish. And all of this fits in there. So put away the sword, Peter. Not only did one of his disciples betray him with a kiss, but notice that the rest of them fled. Instead of standing and helping, they ran away out of fear. And again, as the passage closed, one of them literally runs out of his clothes out of fear. So know that Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. But second, I want you to see that know that Jesus was betrayed also by his people. We're going to read Mark 14, 53 down to verse 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were 
seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up and in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What, what is it that these men testify against you? Let's stop there. They, they took Jesus again before the Sanhedrin. And again, this is this legislative body. This is kind of the, the Jewish high court. The, maybe the Supreme Court is a way to think of it. It's made up of, of 70 uh, different people where the chief priest presides over all of it. Jesus was, of course, Jewish. And so there's a real sense that Jesus is being brought before his nation, his people, their political leaders, their, their religious leaders are, are putting him on trial. And Jewish law required accusers to bring witnesses to substantiate their accusations. Now, when we're going to see later, uh, Roman law, when he's brought before Pilate, looks a little bit different. They they don't have to have these witnesses. But the Sanhedrin, in that sense, uh, make this appearance of following, uh, uh, faithfully following the law. But there's, if you get into the weeds of it, they're actually breaking the law in some ways. They're not fully being faithful to the law in a in about four key ways. Number one. That they weren't supposed to hold a trial like this by night. So that's kind of a signal to the reader that something nefarious is going on here. Second, they weren't supposed to de- determine a, a capital case. And if, if they were, it wasn't supposed to be this close to the Sabbath. And third, the outcome shouldn't have already been determined. But the accused was supposed to have a fair trial. But, but as we can see, there's uh, uh, by the nature of these witnesses, it wasn't a fair trial. But in fourth... Uh, they did need witnesses, but they were just supposed to be truthful witnesses. So if there were contradictions in their statements as there were, they, they should have been thrown out immediately. But, but notice the kind of the narrow focus of their false claims. They said in Mark 14, 58, that we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and three days later I will build another not made with hands. The Gospel of Mark doesn't record uh, Jesus' comments about destroying the temple, but, but the Gospel of John does. In, in John 2, 18 uh, to 22, we read, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking uh, about, not about the temple, but of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus has spoken. That's the statement that, that they're referring back to, but it's false because they're, they're twisting the meaning. They're, they're twisting the accusation. But Jesus' response is silence. He's like a, a silent lamb, an innocent lamb going to his slaughter. That in and of itself is, is a fulfillment of another prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so, she, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, Jesus accepted the betrayal of his people and he embraced his crucifixion so that he could make an atonement as this sacrificial lamb for his people. But when he finally does open his mouth in the next verse, 
This becomes the, I think, the climax of the whole passage. This, this is the good news of this entire section. Look at verses 61 to 65. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received, and the guards received him with blows. Mark 14.62 is the gospel of this section. You see, when the chief priest finally asked him directly, Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Through all this betrayal, through all this abuse, Jesus remains steadfast to the good news that he is the Son of Man, that he's going to be seated at the right hand of power, and that he is going to come again. On each of those Uh, Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man, notice that the high priest knew exactly what he was saying there. His response reveals that he understands what Jesus is saying there. He he tears his robe because he understands that if that's not true, that's blasphemy. The high priest knew Daniel 7, and he knew that what Jesus was doing was identifying himself as the Messiah. The Son of Man meant that he was identifying himself as a human, so he was like the son of Adam in that sense. But he was also divine in the sense that he was the promised Messiah. He was going to have authority to atone as well as the authority to rule and to reign. So Jesus claiming to be the son of man is good news because he is an example for all of humans of how to live. He's the son of man. But he is, uh, we, we can relate to all that human suffering. He can relate to all that betrayal that you walk through. However, being the Son of Man, it also means that He's divine and He has this reconciling ministry for you. He's making all things right for you so that you can come back to God and dwell with Him. Mark 8.31 says, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed, and after three days rise again. As the Son of Man, He's fulfilling all of that. He, he, he is he's stepping into uh, that, that mission of redemption, that plan from eternity past uh, of blessing his people in spite of their betrayal. But second, Jesus answered the chief priest saying uh, that he was going to be seated at the right hand of power. And this means that he was going to sit, meaning that he was going to finish his work. His work of redemption was going to be complete and done. There, there is no more uh, sacrifice that needs to take place. By seating, it also means that he's going to reign, reign with power with God the Father. Jesus presently is seated at the right hand of God, and that's good news because it means that his redeeming work is complete. Amen? There's no more blood that needs to be shed for your sin, but it also means that his sanctifying work never ends. He continues as this great high priest after making purifications for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3. So the blessing of, of this betrayal experience is that Jesus was completing his redeeming mission. So you can experience Jesus because he experienced betrayal. Friends, this is the gospel. 
but also you can also keep experiencing Jesus day in and day out because he went through that betrayal. His redeeming work is complete, but his sanctifying work continues. Amen? All of that is wrapped up in this statement that Jesus says of himself. But he says one more thing. He says in verse 62 that he will come again. Now listen, there are dozens of verses that say the same thing. But what Jesus was saying in there is he was saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, and I'm coming again. And when I come, it's going to be the great day of the Lord where all things are made right. Friends, his kingdom is coming, is what he's saying. And the return of Jesus is good news because all things are going to be made whole. All things are going to be made right. There's going to be peace. There's going to be prosperity. We're going to dwell with God forever. Therefore, again, Jesus is saying that he's turning that betrayal of his people into their blessing. Jesus is willing to experience betrayal so that you can then experience him. That's the good news of this passage. Well, we, all that's good news, but the chief priest, he responds in a pretty shocking way, doesn't he? Like, do you feel the, feel the heat of his response? Like, I, I believe his response is not only hateful, but I, I, think there's, I think there's something demonic going on here. Like, he just erupts in, in rage, and, and, and people respond in the same way and follow that contempt. Here they are, the promised Messiah, right in front of them. Instead of falling down and worshiping him and following him, they mock him, they strike him, they spit upon him, and they set things in motion to kill him. Again, Jesus is willing to go through all that, that deep demonic level of betrayal so that he can bless his people. Jesus is willing to experience this betrayal so that you can then experience him. Amen? The third thing I want you to see is I want you to know that Jesus was also betrayed by a friend. Let's look at verses 66 all the way to the end of the chapter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say, to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak. And then verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Jesus is not only betrayed by this group of disciples and this group of his nation, but he's also betrayed individually by a close friend. And as you look at this account with Peter, it becomes pretty damning, doesn't it? Like not only does he just deny him once, he denies him three times. And there's kind of a heat to the denial as it increases. Like he ends up just cursing himself if he were to know him. And then he references back to the Last Supper of Mark 14, 30, where he says, And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled. And notice how this entire passage ends. Look at that very final statement in verse 72. And he broke down and wept. 
Mark has taken us on a bit of a journey here, right? He's taken us kind of through three different scenes of betrayal. The first one is the villain Judas. And I don't know about you, but those verses about Judas kissing my Jesus on the cheek as a signal for the guards to seize him, that just makes my blood boil. Did you read that passage and does it instinctively make you mad? <laughs> and, and then going to that, you know, to the Sanhedrin and, and this kind of hated, hypocritical, political and religious elites of the country, how they've kind of twisted everything and they've kind of had this cynical show trial and then they're spitting on my Jesus and sending him off to be crucified. Does that fill you with rage as it does with me? Listen, I see those two scenes and I say, how, how could they do that? Like, how, how could they be religious leaders and, and, and the Messiah be right in front of it and miss it and, and treat him in that way? But there's something about the Peter account that's just a little bit different, right? Doesn't it hit us in a little bit different way? Like there, there's something about it that, yeah, it, it draws up that same stuff. How, how could he do that? But, but then here at the end, it's just a, it's a heartbreaking end. And we're, we're meant to be cut to the heart here. Like, don't you see yourself in Peter? Like, listen, it, it, it's easy to throw stones at Judas and the Sanhedrin. But Peter? Like, some of you know the history. History says that, and maybe this is true, maybe it isn't, but when Peter was sentenced to death because of his preaching of the gospel and they were going to crucify him, he said he didn't feel worthy to, be, to die in the same way of Jesus. And he asked them to crucify him upside down. Like, that's, that's devotion. That, that's a man who loves Jesus. Poor Peter is cut to the heart here, isn't he? And he broke down and wept. Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. He was betrayed by his people. And I think it's easy to throw stones at Judas and the, and the chief priests. It's easy to put them kind of in the, in the villain category, right? But Jesus is also betrayed by this close friend. And we know the rest of the story, right? Like this isn't the end for Peter, but there's just something different about the betrayal of Peter. You see, the Peter account, it makes it all more personal for us, doesn't it? Have you ever been the friend that betrayed Jesus? Listen, I'm, I'm sure you've been betrayed, okay? And, and hear me, Jesus knows that experience too. But have you also been the betrayer? More specifically, have you betrayed Jesus? What I mean is, have you ever denied him before like they denied him? Have you ever been in that, that, that moment where you should share the gospel or, or you should sh uh, share something that is according to your biblical convictions, but you do like the disciples, you, you run away. Have you ever had that moment of truth where you denied him or, or maybe you softened your convictions in some way? Have you ever been in the outside the courtyard broken down and weeping? Friends, Jesus experienced betrayal. Those who should have protected him handed him over. Trust was broken. However, this story isn't just about them, it's about us. And, and let's be honest, you and I have betrayed him in similar ways as, Jesus, as Peter has betrayed him. We're the friends who have betrayed him. That's where this story ends. That point is what makes Jesus and his grace all the more glorious. Friends, please hear me. Mark 14 provides a legitimate takeaway that because Jesus was betrayed, we can turn to him when, we're, when we experience betrayal. He knows what we're walking through. He's sympathetic. He provides the needed healing and wisdom that we need. And when you experience the sting of betrayal, run to Jesus. That's a, 
That's a clear takeaway from this. He will heal your soul. He will give you wisdom on how to move forward in healthy ways. He turns betrayal into blessing. But there's other takeaways that are, that are even better or even more glorious or are better news. Jesus experiences human betrayal so that humans can experience Jesus. You see, he chose this, this sting of betrayal from his disciples and his people and even a friend for a redemptive purpose. That's why he's doing this. It's more than just to be an example. It's to reconcile you back. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Friends, he experienced all those betrayals so that you could then in turn experience him. He's the blessing. Have you experienced Jesus? He turns betrayal into blessings. But I think the ending with Peter's betrayal, I think it takes it to this ultimate takeaway, maybe the greatest news of all. You see, we can't treat these stories like unaffected observers, right? Like we can't treat this story as critics who just throw stones at Judas and at the, at the chief priest. The story isn't ultimately about putting us in the center of it and saying, okay, listen, when we're betrayed, we can relate to Jesus and he can relate to us. Rather, the story is really about keeping Jesus at the center and remembering that like Peter, you, that you have also betrayed him in the same way. So like me, you have denied him. In other words, we're the betrayers. However, this is where the good news gets even more glorious because Jesus turns even our betrayal into our blessing. Do you see that? This is Peter's journey that night. Jesus experiences our betrayal so that we can experience Jesus. He went through that betrayal in order to reconcile back the betrayers that night. Do you see that? Peter's story doesn't end in Mark 14, amen? It ends actually in John 21 in many ways where Jesus uh, forgives him, Jesus restores him, Jesus reconciles Peter. Betrayers, isn't this great news today? This is why he went through it. Not these distant people who betrayed him to then bless another people. Jesus actually blesses the ones who betrayed him that night. He forgives the betrayers. Jesus turns even your betrayal into your blessing. Jesus experiences your betrayal so that you can then experience Jesus. Amen? This is good news. Listen, there's no greater news. This is the most glorious of news. That in your denials and in your betrayals, Jesus turns all of that and walks through all of that with you so that you can then experience Him for eternity. This week I stumbled upon a a song by Steel Crossman called Betrayal. And I heard his acoustic version, which is even better. But I think it's a fitting end to this passage. He sings, saw them all coming, torches in their hands. I knew they were coming, but we did not understand. Who are you seeking? He told them, I am he. All then fell on their knees. He taught them like thunder, and he rattled their walls. Was this the end for us all? Stood in a courtyard, blood upon the hands. We were all scattered because we did not understand. <laughs> but he did not lose one. He kept us all as he should. The voice of the shepherd is still good. 
He taught us like thunder. He rattled our walls. Was this the end now for us all? He stood before Pilate, truth before them, but he did not want it, for he loved the praise of man. Where is your kingdom? Call, call us all to fight. Save us all, Jesus. Save your life. And he taught them like thunder, and he rattled their walls. Was this the end now for us all? But he taught us like thunder, and he rattled our walls. Was this the end now for us all? Friends, we've all experienced the sting of betrayal. We've also all experienced how God, if you're a Christian, has taken those betrayals and turned them to your blessings. Mark 14 is all about Jesus turning betrayal into blessing. What if your betrayal was turned into blessing by you turning to Jesus? In other words, what if Jesus' experience of betrayal was so that you could experience Jesus forever? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this passage, even the, the parts that just seem so maddening, so dark. Lord, we know that, that good is coming in the morning. Well, we, we know that the garden and the, the Sanhedrin, none of that is the end of the story. We know that something is, is coming better. You're, you're, you're turning betrayal into blessing. What if we're walking in a, in a Friday season, in a betrayal season? I pray that we would not lose hope in you, that we would trust you for all things. But Lord, ultimately, this passage is about you accomplishing your redemptive purpose. You're taking all of us who are the betrayers like Peter. And through walking through that, you're reconciling us. Lord, I pray that there would not be anyone that walks out of this room today that hasn't given their life to you. I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't trust you, that doesn't really believe in you, that what you've done on the cross was to pay their sins, I pray that they would get right with you today. I pray that they would know that you went through all of this for them to reconcile them to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.